The promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician. And she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, here's your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. Welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. I'm a businesswoman, not a politician. I fix problems. I don't make them. And, you know, we have so many problems at this point that it's kind of hard to know where to begin. But at their foundation, at their at their nexus, we've reached a point where we're having trouble having a civil conversation. And, you know, one person I know who always knows how to have a civil conversation conversation is Jim Rex, the National Chair Emeritus of the Alliance Party, the new national political party that's created to give voters a new choice in, a new approach to American politics. The Alliance Party is the result of the consolidation of various independent state initiatives, all of which have a common vision a United States of America that works for everyone, a future of fairness and opportunity where the government acts with integrity and solves problems, a party led by fellow citizens rather than lifetime professional politicians, a modern expression of small r Republican vision of our founding fathers. Jim served as the 16th elected superintendent of education of South Carolina from 2007 to 2011. The state of South Carolina rewarded his efforts with the Order of the Palmetto, the highest civilian honor that the state awards in 2010 as his term of office came to an end. Prior to his years in elective office, Dr. Rex served for 30 years in the higher education system of South Carolina, first as a professor, then as a dean, a vice chancellor, and finally the president of Columbia College. He's a native South Carolinian. He and his wife, Dr. Sue Rex, are the parents of four and the grandparents of 10. Jim, like I, sees his continued civic engagement as an important legacy for those grandchildren. Jim, thank you so much for joining the Reimagine America Radio Hour today. Oh, thank you, Joyce, and thank you for that gracious introduction. Oh, my pleasure. It, it could be, it, it, it's an accurate depiction. But, you know, as I said in my brief uh, introduction up front, America's political divide is acute, but it's nothing new. What is new, however, is what used to be differences in policy that could be fought out in debate have become societal breaking points. You know, Nicole Wallace asked recently, are we, the United States of America, so broken that we can't come together to fight a pandemic? Chris Hayes put it better, I think. He asked, is the USA now like a family and a Eugene O'Neill play? You know, I might throw into that question, 
Albie or Copet. I mean, poor dad hanging in the in the closet, and I'm so sad. More broadly, why can't seemingly reasonable people come to agreement on such basic things as vaccination to stop a deadly pandemic when the science is so clear? I mean, 10 minutes after President Biden's speech today talking about why the vaccine mandates are, are need to be expanded and why they're so por- important in ending the COVID pandemic, Kevin McCarthy was out on Twitter talking about, you know, the forceful, you know, forcing people uh, to take a shot being somehow undemocratic. I don't know. You sent four kids to school and you've got 10 uh, grandchildren, many of whom are in school. They're all vaccinated for measles, mumps, rubella, chickenpox, polio, et cetera, aren't they? Yes, of course. So why are our politics in 2021 in the midst of a global pandemic so myopic and so deadly? Well, there are lots of reasons for it. And of course, it, it, it didn't just happen. It's, it's part of a process that began some years ago. It's, it's um, you know, the blame, if you want to use that term, could be laid at the feet of many institutions, many individuals, and many groups of people, including our two dominant political parties, especially our two dominant political parties. I, um, when you were describing our extreme partisanship and division, Joyce, I was thinking about a group I spoke to about three years ago, and I was talking about the division even that we had back then, and someone during the question and answer period said, well, is there any hope? Is there anything that would unify us again and bring us back together? And I said, well, you know, I thought maybe 9-11 could have or would have. Uh, we all know it didn't. There was that, that one uh, photograph taken on the steps of the Capitol. And then three days later, we were right back at it again. Um, but I did tell this person, I said, you know, some people think that what it's going to take is a real crisis. And obviously 9-11 didn't meet that requirement, but maybe something like what a lot of people are predicting, a pandemic, you know, we've had some close calls with Ebola and the bird flu and others. Um, You know, they say it's just a question of when, not if, we're going to have a pandemic. And God forbid if we do have one and millions of people die and, um, millions of people are sick, maybe that would surely bring us together and people would stop giving a damn about who's a Republican and who's a Democrat. Well, we've tested that, haven't we? And uh, even a pandemic uh, not only didn't make our division less, there's some uh, pretty good arguments that it's made it worse. And you just cited one example with vaccinations and masking and all the other things related to trying to uh, combat this, this terrible virus. So the, the causes, um, why things are getting so bad, some people are saying we're more divided now than at any time in our history, other than perhaps the Civil War. And um, this one is harder to explain than the Civil War. Some people are calling it a cold Civil War. I, I, I suspect- think they're 
I think they're right. Increasingly, yeah. day by day, I, I'm I'm amazed at the extreme positions that are coming out of some state legislatures. I mean, I'm and and we are facing so many existential crises. So you know, I think I think it may be more acute than it was in the 1850s, leading up to the Civil War. Yeah, sadly ironic, isn't it, that at a time because of all of these existential threats from climate change uh, to the pandemic, to income inequality, to all of our infrastructure needs, um, our education needs, our healthcare needs, you can run down this long list. You would think at a time that we were all being burdened with so many challenges that we have in common, that it would have the effect of, of coordinating and communicating and, and creating unity. Uh, but it hasn't. I, no, it hasn't at all. In fact, a week after Ida, and, I, and I'm sure South Carolina was, you got wet enough, huh? Um, a week after after uh, Hurricane Ida, when people in New Orleans still don't have power, when 40 people in New York and New Jersey were swept away and drowned, we aren't even sure we can pass a, a trillion dollar infrastructure bill in the House where 67 senators, including Mitch McConnell, have already voted for it. And we're not sure we can get that through the House because the progressives, the left wing of the House of Representatives, wants to snatch defeat out of the potential jaws of victory, not for the people, but for their own political ambition. It's just not it's not tolerable anymore, Jim. Well, you're right, and it hasn't been for some time. But one thing, Joyce, that both parties have in common is that they're both populated by career politicians. And you and I have talked about this before, but whether mm -hmm. you have a Democratic label or a Republican label, if you perceive yourself to be a career politician, in other words, you're going to make a 25 or 30 year or longer career out of something that the founding fathers thought was going to be public service, and that there were going to be citizen legislators, but you've decided it's going to be your career. It's going to be your ticket to power, to influence, and and money. Um, you're going to do whatever it takes to stay in office. You're going to do whatever it takes to um, cater to that small, relatively small group of people in your base, in your gerrymandered district, in all likelihood, because most most districts are gerrymandered now in this country. So you're going, to, you're going to do what's necessary to make sure that that highly partisan group that shows up in your primaries, the general election doesn't even matter in most gerrymandered districts any longer. You're going to make sure that that well-funded, loud, vociferous uh, group that shows up in your primary is going to put you back in office. Uh, and you'll do, and as I said, you'll say whatever it takes. And if you're a Democrat and you're in a very progressive gerrymandered district, um, you're going to cater to that group. If you're a Republican, you're in a very conservative gerrymandered district, you're going to cater to that group. The founding fathers never foresaw the prospect of career politicians. As, as smart as they were, there were a few that had inklings that something was going to be very amiss if we had political parties. George Washington, especially in his last public uh, speech to the country, warned against political parties because he said they would become more interested in their needs 
than in the needs of the nation they try to serve. Well, he never told a lie, and he certainly didn't tell one on that occasion. No, he didn't. Um, but if you think about if you think about the divisions, you know, representing your district, okay, one of the most impacted districts in the Ida situation, after you account for uh, for New York, for Louisiana, where you know Senator Cassidy has been everywhere you can you can go touting this tr the need for this trillion dollar infrastructure bill the worst impacted part of the northeast was miss Cortez, um, alexandria ocasa cortez's district in the in the queens and bronx and yet she's one of the most vocal opponents of passing the infrastructure bill unless she gets all of her um, wish list uh, in the three and a half trillion dollar Democratic only package that looks like it's dead on arrival. So, I mean, you can't even say that, that they pursue the, the interests of their district, of the people they represent, rather than pursuing their own power base. Well, I'm not that familiar with her district, but I would I would guess that what you and I would call a wish list is a must list for her constituents who show up in her primary. Um, wouldn't their biggest must list be uh, a, a, a water transport system? In other words, a flood control system where people don't drown in apartments? I think it would be far down the list from uh, the other kind of subsidies that she is demanding that be part of the package, the deal with housing, child care, health care, uh, a lot of the other things that she's uh, trying to champion. I'm not taking sides. Obviously, you know how I feel about both parties. But I yes, think I do. <laughs> but, I, but, I, but I think in her case, she's catering to a higher priority list than uh, flood protection, for example, with her constituents. So, so and she's again, really, and again, it's because she wants to be a career politician, right? Because she's figured out it pays better than being a barista or going and getting a real job as an economist, um, uh, because her degree is in econ in economics. Um, but you know, we have that's one extreme. All right, then we can go to the other extreme, in which you know nothing that Donald Trump does or says, because we've never had a former president before who was out holding rallies, et cetera. Uh, but nothing that he ever says doesn't fail, you know, just to add to the vitriol. And and yet, you know, sometimes I sit back and I wonder, you know, these people went to school, right? You know, who are believing some of this crazy stuff, they went to public school. Does that mean our educational system has completely failed? I think like many of our institutions, um, our educational system is not preparing our citizens adequately for the challenges of today. And certainly not adequately in terms of dealing with this barrage of misinformation, disinformation, and increasingly highly sophisticated 
uh, technologically supported propaganda techniques that really sweep away uh, most people's ability to do any kind of real analysis. So, yeah, I, I think the general population um, is very ill-prepared educationally and otherwise to deal with the onslaught of uh, the information and the persuasive arguments that they're being given. I mean, it, I see people that I thought I've known for decades, uh, former colleagues, family members, who I thought were rational, logic, logical human beings who have uh, been swept away by some of these arguments, some of these uh, conspiracy theories, and some of this disinformation. So yeah, it's, it's a failure of the education system, but it's a failure of our media and lots of other institutions also. And talk about the failure of the media. I, I think you're right, but you know, expound on that idea. Well, you know, they, they feed us, uh, us meaning, you know, those of us who live within the boundaries of the United States of America, they, they feed us our news uh, in bits and chunks. Uh, they never take the time or very seldom to really educate us about an issue, to show us the various sides of an issue. And as you know, and I think our audience knows, you can go to a source, whether it's a TV network or whether it's on social media, you can go to a source that will feed you what you already believe and uh, strengthen and solidify that belief even further. They'll never present you with the opposite side or two or three different scenarios that may uh, conflict with what you already believe. So um, that's what the media is doing. It's, it's profit-driven. It's part of our capitalistic system. And um, media has uh, made a lot of money doing it. And I see no reason why it will not continue. Well, how do we, you know, the largest political party in this country is independent. And that elect portion of the electorate is growing. So there does seem to be a disenchantment with the extremes on both sides by a significant majority of the electorate. But isn't part of the problem, then how do we get those people to really pay attention? Because they hear all this noise on the right and the left. And, and based on a lot of people I know, most of them just tune it out. You know, they only get interested every four years in terms of the presidency, and they don't seem to realize how the real power in a constitutional system is in Congress. Um, so why is it so hard, um, given, you know, the daily impact of uh, their of, of this governing failure on their lives. Why is it so difficult to engage those people in creating a viable alternative to the 13% extremes on either side of the political um, landscape? Why is that so hard? Well, let me unpack. Let me unpack that a little bit because that's a great question, but it's it's uh, very difficult to um, quickly or simply answer. Um, first of all, Take your one time. Thing I, <laughs> well, one thing I one thing I, I probably would disagree with you. I don't think the largest party is independent. Um, 
there's the, the, the group of Americans who call themselves independents is much larger, you're right, than the group of Americans who, when polled, call themselves Republican or Democrat. They either call themselves independents or they call themselves non-affiliated or, or some term like that. But it's not a party per se. And it's a group of people that um, when research is done on their voting habits, uh, most of them, even though they say they're independent, most of them tend to vote for one or the other of the two dominant parties. So they say they're independent, but when it comes time to vote, if they vote, and some of those don't vote, but if they vote, they do tend to overwhelmingly vote as an individual, either for Republicans or Democrats. Now, I personally think that part of the explanation for that is that that's the way they see politics in America. Why wouldn't they? That's the way they were raised to see it. That's the way their parents saw it. That's the way their grandparents saw it. They always saw it as a two-party duopoly, you know, a, a binary choice, the lesser of two evils, et cetera, et cetera. So even though they're uncomfortable with it, increasingly, that's what the polls show, because as you said, more and more are saying they're neither Republican nor Democrat, they have a hard time really imagining what the alternative that they wish for, what it would look like. Um, Marshall McLuhan, many years ago, wrote a book called The Medium is the Message. And in that, he says, I don't know who discovered water, but I'm damn sure it was not a fish. <laughs> and, and so all of us, including you and me, you know, we were raised in this American political system and we see it a certain way. And those people who are striving for something better, who know deep in their gut that this isn't working, that there's something wrong, um, are sort of like uh, a vegetarian who goes to their local restaurant and they find that when they get there, there are only two choices on the menu, hamburger or hot dogs. Well, it doesn't do you much good to be a vegetarian if when you get your ballot, all you see are these two dominant choices that you and your parents and your grandparents have always been exposed to. So I think what's happening is that because of some of the stuff, stuff we've already talked about and, and that your listeners I'm sure are concerned about also all these problems and challenges and the fact that America can't seem to come together and solve problems anymore, in some cases not even agree on what they are. Um, we know that's not good. We know that that is dangerous. We have sort of a foreboding, I think many of us, about the future. I know you and I do, because we talked about our grandchildren and uh, the foreboding we have about what will America look like and be like for them in their lifetimes. And so when asked, are you Republican or Democrat, more and more of us are saying, no, I'm not, I'm not either one of them. And neither one of them are doing the job. Neither one of them address my needs, the things I care about. So I'm gonna put down independent. But that's kind of where it stops. It's, it's a reaction to a poll, it's a reaction to a question. But what needs to be done next, how to activate that, that dissatisfaction, that foreboding is what we're trying to do with the Alliance Party. We're trying to get Americans, this goes back to education, I guess. We're trying to get them to see that there is a different way. Beginning with, let's attract and, and let's elect a different type of person to public service. Let's not elect people who are, first of all, ideologues, who aren't interested in solving problems, 
or having discussions about complex problems and looking for uh, complex, in some cases, solutions. But instead, we're looking for public servants who want to come into office, term limit, limited, as you know, the Alliance Party, if you're going to run for a legislative job in either a state or a federal Congress, Senate, you have a pledge and the party enforces it, monitors it, that you cannot stay in those offices for more than a combined total of 12 years. In other words, you've got more than a decade to go in and try to make your state or your nation better and then get out and live under the laws you help develop. That's going to attract a different kind of person. Yes. Well, we and we see some inklings of that in in Congress. If if you look at you know people like Jason Crow, who's uh, is a Democrat, um, but he's definitely not a progressive. Um, he was inspired by his military experience. So a lot of those people, a lot, those seventeen members of Congress who are former military uh, service members have all talked about their sense of service. So, you know, that's one model. Um, and, and I think it's an important concept that they should be serving rather than profiting from their service. And I think that's where uh, the Alliance Party comes down on it as well. I agree. And I think that's a, a great comparison, Joyce, because most of the service people I know and have known in my lifetime did not see themselves as a Republican soldier or sailor or airman or a Democrat soldier, sailor or airman. They saw themselves as trying to serve America. Um, and they also have these, these great ethics in the military. They don't always live up to them like, you know, all of us fall, fail sometimes. But we're human. They, they have this great ethic that if there's a problem, it's a problem that we have. It's not my problem. It's not your problem. It's our problem. That's the kind of approach we need from our elected leaders. It's our problem. It's our nation. It's our future. And why can't we come together and start solving them? I think we can find those people. There's lots of them in America. Some of them are drawn to the armed services, as you just said. But why aren't there being... Uh, why aren't more of them being drawn to elected service, public service? And the other problem is even when we find those people, and there are some that come into politics, I'd like to think I was one, when you put them in the system we have now, um, I learned a long time ago that if you put a good person with good motivations up against a bad system, bet on the system every time. Because the system persists and perseveres Good people get tired, corrupted, compromised. Um, they, don't, they don't last. They can't, an individual can't change this thing. You can't elect a certain person to the presidency or your governorship or the US Senate and change the system that these two parties have put in place laboriously over a, more than a century and a half of you know, heavy political action. Um, we've got to change the system and these two these two parties are not going to change. They created it. Why would they? It works great for them, but it's bad for the country. Well, and, and you know, a big part of my audience are people who are business people. And, you know, 
the the polarity in this country is destructive of the formation of successful businesses. I mean, this is not the way that I remember government functioning. Um, you know, when I started my career, um, when when we had looked to government to give us a sense of uh, predictability in the future. Um, it with in which we could make, you know, entrepreneurial decisions. And I don't think that unless you are General Motors, well, in fact, even if you're General Motors, I'm not sure um, that the small and medium businesses, which are create 80% of the jobs in this country, don't have a sense of either uh, participation uh, or recognition in this system as it works today. They don't have, they can't, they can't find a voice and they can't predict the future. I mean, if you look at voting laws um, at, at um, you know, the Texas abortion uh, laws, which are, are intended not to be moral, but cruel. I mean, if you're trying to create a new business, how do you, when women are, by the way, the majority of college graduates today and the consumers in this country, how do you create a business and, and talk about how you're going to make it successful and pass it on to your children in a, in a political environment, which is so um, insular and uh, divided and, and has so divided the population. Well, you know, I've, I've worked with business leaders my whole career. I worked with them, of course, when I was in elected office as a constitutional officer for four years. I've worked with business leaders as a college president. Um, they were on my board of trustees, um, all parties. Um, you know, we don't just need a different type of elected leader. In most cases, we need a different type of business leader in this country also. And the reason I say that is it used to be that you could perform your leadership role and it was accepted by most people, not everyone. If you just uh, took care of your shareholders and you took care of your bottom line, whatever that bottom line profit uh, objective or goal was, that's what people expected. They expect you to be profitable and to keep your shareholders happy. Um, that has changed. Now uh, to be a successful business leader, in the true sense of the word successful in the 21st century, you have to also pay attention to your employees. You have to pay attention to the community you live in, uh, in terms of giving back to that community or being a positive influence. And increasingly, you even have to care about the planet and, and climate change. Um, but the advocacy role that business leaders, especially large influential business leaders, large influential businesses, leaders of those, um, there's a there's a there's a lack of courage, unfortunately, I think, with many of our so-called business leaders in terms of speaking out on issues that they could make a difference on. And it would help their bottom line. It would help the country. It would help the economy. And a, a good example is the example, Joyce, you just used. Um, you know, what's happened recently in Texas and with the U.S. Supreme Court, and we know that other states are in all likelihood going to emulate the strategy that Texas used to get the um, 
the verdict that they got, the, the, the decision that they got from the Supreme Court. Um, it's been a dead silence. You can hear crickets. Business leaders across the country have said almost nothing about that issue. What's happened in Texas, what happened with the US Supreme Court, what it's done to take away freedoms and liberties from women. Um, and yet they were starting to come around on climate change. They're never at the front of the line, by the way. They're always near the back, I've discovered. You know, for a long time, some business leaders were climate change deniers, especially if it got in the way of their product or their service. And then they slowly came around. Uh, even on Black Lives Matter, uh, George Floyd is what changed that. Some of them started yes. to speak out. But they, 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 unfortunately, then there are some exceptions. God, you know, we got to give those people credit. But for the most part, there's a lack of courage because they're making very good salaries. Um, they have lots of incentives, just like our career politicians do, to protect the status quo because it's profitable and keep things the way they are. So um, I'm not gonna give our business leaders any more of a free pass than I would our political elected leaders at this point. In other words, the system is corrupt. It's corrupt, I think, because of human nature and the fact that we are catering to what some people call our lesser angels versus our greater angels. And our lesser angels are greed and selfishness and uh, you know, self-interest and taking care of those immediately around us uh, in spite of others, in spite of it being uh, uh, what you're doing, being uh, negative or detrimental to others. And our system unfortunately supports that all too often as opposed to our better angels. Our better angels, let's, let's, you know, as we, as we talk about rounding this up and we, we, you know, we really need to have you back to talk about, you know, what do we do? I mean, 55% of the country says we're on the wrong track. What are we going to do? But as we, as we round out this particular conversation, let's talk a minute about those better angels. I mean, have you seen the, the evening news as, as uh, crazy, crazed parents are ripping masks off the faces of school teachers. I mean, this is not the America of my uh, of my experience, um, I, and I'm sure it's not of yours either. So, you know, what happened to our better angels? Our better angels seem to have been sacrificed. Um, on the altar of selfishness. And, and that's never, I mean, that's contrary to the foundations of this country. Well, I, I think our better angels are still in us. Most of us, at least the great majority of us, um, you know, with 9-11 right around the corner, um, been reminded of some of the acts of heroism and self-sacrifice that occurred on that day. Um, this young man, I can't recall his name right offhand, but he was 24 years old. He was, he's identified as the man with the red bandana. He had a bandana uh -huh. over his face and all of the people that he, um, saved before he himself died. Um, the, uh, fireman who ran from one of the tunnels in New York to the, to the towers, the, the uh -huh. tunnel, the tower is named after him. Um, so I, 
it's still there. And a lot of times in the evening news, you know, we, we get 25 minutes of terrible, um, gut-wrenching, sad and tragic news. And then right at the end, they give us a, a feel-good story. Yeah. It kind of <laughs> reminds us <laughs> that there's still a little bit of good in us, you know. Well, I'm but, always amazed by that, Jim, in, in Ida's example or, you know, any natural disaster or, as you say, 9-11, how, you know, ordinary people will forget all about their hostility toward one another about some of these issues that we've been talking about. And they'll be in the rubble looking for survivors, trying to help each other, you know, sharing what little power they may have, et cetera. Um, you know, ordinary people being good and, and trying to contribute, why does that not follow them into the ballot box? Why don't they look for you know, why, why do they not look for people uh, who like that, like the firemen who ran into the fire? Why do they look for people like Jim Jordan, for example? Well, I'm not an anthropologist, but I'm interested <laughs> in anthropology. I have, I have been for a long time. And, you know, many times when, when the two of us and other people I'm sure people who are listening, uh, when we talk about the dilemma we have in this country and in this world to some extent right now, we use the word tribal or, or tribes, how people are divided up. Well, I know enough about anthropology to know that that goes back many, many hundreds of thousands of years. And, and tribalism is in our DNA. And it, it was a good thing. It was a necessary thing for a long time. When we were hunters and gatherers, we organized into groups to increase the odds of our survival. And we even fought other groups to protect our land because there was so limited resource and our land, whether you call it the hunting grounds or whatever term you use, that land is, is where the animals and plants were that, that supported our group, our tribe. So there's an understandable reason why we have a, a proclivity, all of us do to some extent, to be tribal you know, whether it's our religious group or whether it's our ideological group or political group or uh, geographic group or athletic team that we support fanatically or whatever it is, we have this propensity to organize into, into tribes. And as I said, for a long time, that was an advantage. Now it is a disadvantage because we're so intertwined globally and otherwise that while some of these tribal um, affiliations are pretty harmless, there are others that are causing great damage to all of us. And those come out, unfortunately, as some of our lesser angels, the, the ones that harm not only us individually, but us collectively. But down deep inside, we still care about the other members of our group. And that I think is, comes to the surface in these times of trial and tribulation when you don't care about what the color of the skin is of the baby you're, you're rescuing from the flood or what political affiliation the person is that a fireman's pulling from a fire. At that moment, that's a member of your tribe you're trying to support. If we need a political system that focuses on that dynamic that's part of our DNA, as opposed to the fighting and the competition to protect our tribe's land or possessions against another group. And that's what we're not doing. We're, we're catering 
to the negative side of human nature, not the positive. And that can be the essence of, you know, of destroying this very, very uh, successful 250-year experiment um, in both uh, self-government and um, an economic uh, model unrivaled in the world. And on that note, Jim, I'm going to say thank you for your thoughtful comments. And I want to have you come back and talk I think about the Alliance Party, about what it would take in order to get us to um, begin to think about our elected leaders in a different way, in a way that helps that young entrepreneur in Ohio tonight um, think about how he can plan a t- not a two-year future, but a 20-year future. Would you be willing to have that conversation? Of course. I would love it. I look forward to it. And we'll do that. Thank you so much, Jim. Thank you, Joyce. Thanks for listening to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. You can learn more at reimagineamerica.org. Got a comment or an idea for a future show? Email Joyce at reimagineamerica.org or find her on Twitter at Joyce Cordy or at Reimagine Radio. Take a minute now and go to reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum. We'd love to hear your thoughts. If you love the podcast, donate and tell others. You can invite Joyce to speak at your next meeting or conference through reimagineamerica.org. And finally, Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast at ricochet.com or c-sweetnetwork.com. That's c-sweetnetwork.com. Together, we really can reimagine America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-sweetradio.com.